Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, I'll talk with Francis Stark. The Hammer Museum is showing Uh-Oh, Francis Stark, 1991 to 2015, the most comprehensive survey ever launched of the Los Angeles-based artist's work. And yes, we'll talk about that title. It was curated by Ali Sabotnik with an assist from Emily Gonzalez-Jarrett and is on view through January 24, 2016. The show's terrific catalog was published by Delmonico Prestel. We'll have a link to it from manpodcast.com. The exhibition includes around 125 works, including drawings, collages, paintings, and video, and requires the best kind of slow looking. Nearly every work is full of patient discovery requiring detail and cleverness. Stark has been the subject of solo exhibitions at the Art Institute of Chicago, the Hayward Gallery in London, MoMA PS1, the Secession in Vienna, and at nearly a dozen other museums. Her work is regularly on view in major international surveys, including the Carnegie International, the Venice Biennale, and the Hammer's own Biennial. On the second segment, my 2015 Top 10 list. It's hard to believe that this is the 12th Top 10 list I've done, the first 10 on Modern Art Notes, the last two here. But first, Francis Stark, after the break. Experience tomorrow's art history today, for free, and in a beautiful, intimate setting at Blaffer Art Museum. On view this fall, did you know we taught them how to dance? The first solo museum exhibition for British-Nigerian artist Zina Sarawiwa, and a test of art's capacity to envision new concepts of environmentalism. Also on view, Time Image, an international group survey of temporal concerns in contemporary art. More at blafferartmuseum.org. In 2009, the Getty Foundation launched the Online Scholarly Catalog Initiative to rethink the Museum Collection Catalog for the Digital Age. Eight museums received grants to work collaboratively to tackle the challenges of online publishing by creating new prototypes, exploring interactive opportunities including the ability to zoom in on detailed images of artworks, overlay them with conservation documentation, and view artists' videos, just to name a few. All eight digital catalogs are now freely available online. To learn more and to browse the catalogs, visit getty.edu foundation. And we're back. Francis Stark, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you for having me. I want to start with your interest in writing. It's one of the constants throughout your work whether it's references to the ambitiousness of, of literary text, cyber flirtations, references to the indexes of books, unless it's to the indices of books, I can never quite remember. Was there a point in, in your life or career, maybe even before deciding to be a visual artist, at which point you had to grapple with your interest in the written word and your interest in in the visual in visual art? I don't know if grapple is the is the word. I think that when I was 14, it was very clear that I had a strong interest in literature, and and that was when I was a punk rocker. So, and there wasn't like there weren't like stores in the mall or whatever. Right, this is way back. So I was kind of my visual literacy in terms of art per se would be coming from record covers and stuff like that, you know, and references made in that context, which would lead then, of course, to Andy Warhol and such, you know, through alternative music. But I was really a reader and a writer, fundamentally, as a as a thinker, how I oriented myself in the world. So by the time I even started playing with visual art or learning about contemporary art, I had been a letter writer for years and years. And You know, so I think that my orientation was primarily through address, you know, (laughs) direct address, like, and and that also kind of goes for, even if you think of the album, like a little 45 or something, like that's something that you're holding in your hand and you're reading while you're in your room and you're, you know that there are many of those, but you're, but you know, but you're having a private experience decoding the meaning of that thing. And the same with whatever a Henry Miller book or or a poem, Emily Dickinson poem. There's this kind of personal encounter with the text that is that that's that I guess if you want to say grapple that moment of grappling or or negotiating its 
power, its meaning, or even if it's, yeah, I'm thinking of sitting in my room reading the lyrics to the X-Ray Specs album, you know, that Polystyrene wrote, you know, so I think that my coming of age, there was such a, there was the, the, the visual and the literary were sort of conjoined somehow through this subcultural platform, if that makes sense. You know, now that you describe it that way, a work of yours comes kind of quickly to mind. It's called Look at the Parts, Dickinson v. Whitman with Magritte, a, a collage on rice paper from 2009. It almost, and we'll have an image of it, of course, on manpodcast.com, but it almost seems to be a piece an artwork that illustrates exactly what you're talking about. I mean, even right down to the musical note collaged element. <laughs> and it has a little mylar, I think a little strip of mylar in there. <laughs> sort yep, of. at the very bottom. <laughs> but yeah, also, and I think also the fact, the re, the, the piece that, that in that piece also there's a leg, like a spare leg from another collage or two legs, I guess. So, and, and they're being held up by this sort of silhouetted hand. And I did, I have done a series of those and they're usually called, I went through my bin and there's something for me, I kind of think of them as, I think of those as paintings often because it's a kind of constellation of, of marks. It seems like it's like a haphazard, like found, constellation of marks but you can they are actually legible so it is a composition visually but it's also a composition thematically and that's the sort of i think the curious part about the 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 work that goes back to your first question you know that it's somehow able to be painterly at the same time that it is extremely discursive while including lots of clever references to lots of things, including to the American trompe tradition, surrealism, one of America's, if not America's greatest poet. Yeah, it's a pretty super piece. I, I noted with some amusement that the the picture of that work in the catalog, so that finger you, you, you referenced a moment ago appears to be holding in true trompe form all of these collaged objects to the piece of paper. It is also, this is one of the very few artworks that is represented in the catalog with the with screws that appear to be holding it to the wall. I'm not I'm probably not saying this very well, but just, you know, these these the fasteners that hold the artwork to the wall are included in, in the catalog picture of the artwork in a way that kind of doubles down on the Trumpeloe illusion and reminds a viewer of it, which is <laughs> which is obviously still cracking me. <laughs> That's great. So speaking of Emily Dickinson, in, in the late 1990s, you made works on rice paper that feature passages from indexes, and I think a, a, an index of Dickinson, a work of Dickinson poems, is one of you know is one of the, the index pieces you made. Were you interested in making these pieces that include passages from indices? because of the specific literary references themselves, or was it a chance to make a visual joke about seriality or something else altogether? Well, it actually started, that body of work also includes a whole bunch of works that reference George Harrison <laughs> from the Beatles, but those didn't hold up so well because of the fugitive material. So they, we, you know, they don't, we have a problem there. <laughs> but that said, there was something going on. It's co quite convoluted and but um, and multi-layered. But um, on on one level, in that whole body of work, it was the sort of 1860s and the 1960s kind of meeting in a way. But the Emily Dickinson material was I had actually discovered. I I was working for Charles Ray at the time actually. And we went on a break. We went into the UCLA library. They were selling old, like PhD papers and whatnot. So I, <laughs> someone had written their 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 thesis or their doctorate dissertation. Their dissertation, yes. And it was called the Very Pressive Imagery, and it was a it included a selective concordance. And I had never heard that term before selective concordance I didn't know what it was but I 
fell in love with the idea with this document because essentially what that is is a a method of studying the actual texts of someone's work. So he had chosen terms which were somehow stood in some relationship to science or whatever. So he has, you know, in his particular, this student's particular selective concordance, they have this massive list of words that are relevant to the area that he's studying. And then he goes through and finds every, occur you know, every occurrence of that word in her whole body of work. And so it was this kind of like cross section of her, her entire life's output and to actually see the kind of accretion to, to visually like grasp, like everything she had ever done, like a sort of cross section. It was just totally blowing my mind. And also for her, of course, because uh, I forgot the name of the, man but who had gone back and essentially numbered all of her poems chronologically so that when in the selective concordance you have like you know it's a it's it's a it's an interesting thing to behold because you have the you have the number of the poem that it appears and then the the year that it appears you know what i mean it was just like this visual magical visualization of someone's mind over a whole lifespan of productivity. So that pretty much blew me away. And then with when you read that kind of repetition, there's so many gems in there. So that was so impactful to me. And I think the one visual one the one visual punch that I got from that book, and it's it does appear in the exhibition, it's birds and bees. And so when they had got so they're listing all of the, you know, this word, whether it's like bonnet or whatever uh, any any word you name it all uh, circumference is one of them when it came to birds and bees there were too many to list so it was just a giant like hunk of numbers and it's very that really titillated me because when you're young and you learn about Emily Dickinson you imagine this sort of prim and sexless you know individual you know in a in a spar spare room and and but then we really think that it is so much about life force and sexual energy and seduction and yeah and and also and, and people will see this visually on manpodcast.com bee and bird are next to each other in a concordance when you know that, that is moving alphabetically so the bee, the bees and the birds are conjoined, as it were. You know, it's it's interesting that I I hadn't heard the concordance story before, or hadn't read it, but it reminds me. You're telling it reminds me that artists maybe almost take that kind of thing for granted because artists often embed references in artworks themselves. So, for example, you embed uh, in 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 one of the pull after push collages, you know, right above your reclining odalisk is a reference to kind of the history of the thing. And it maybe in visual art, it's easier to do that than it is in, in other art forms. Well, also, I think that the, another, it brings up the issue of one of the very first pieces in the, in, that you encounter in the exhibition is the T.S. Eliot poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock, which with which has the kind of annotated marginalia, you know, the marginalia from the reader, which and that's you know T. S. Eliot is sort of famous for embedding references in perhaps a kind of overly stodgy way or something. I'm not sure. Although that poem is pretty accessible, but so so yeah, I think that. I think that that it's interesting because I guess as an artist or as a some you know exhibitionist I suppose like I do I do sort of presume sometimes too much that people do read things that closely. <laughs> you know, we assume because that's how how I, you know, that's how I learned you know was through the sort of, you know, the joy of unpacking and the joy of of noticing those kinds of things. And so the selective concordance is, while it is a kind of, you know, literally a strictly academic kind of tool, it is also something that as a kind of person in the world, I just assume that that's interesting to, you know, that sort of approach or that sort of keen eye or something is, is still a possibility 
well, I don't, you know, I know they have those, those things now, you know, you always see like a meme where it pops up like every word they said in the speech or whatever. Yeah. It's not yeah, quite the same. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Yes, yes. And uh, uh, there is a strain of internet culture that likes to reduce things to the most easily digested graphic. And one of the attractions of visual art is that it resists that. One of the things you do the most of is collage. And one of the other things you do the most of is referencing digital life, things we do on our computer screens, whether they're interactions with other people or just kind of the simple act of, of typing and, and creating. Is there an intentional analogy that you make between collage and the act of uh, making collages, the physical act of making collages, and what we do on our computer screens and word processors when we cut and paste? I don't know if it's if it if it's an intentional I think when you say when when I was listening to you say that I was realizing that I think that at a certain point maybe perhaps bricolage <laughs> there's a bit in the PowerPoint piece structures that fit my opening where I'm quoting Avital Rennell and how she's sort of rereading Madame Bovary and she says something like she's a bricolure of my I'm a bricolure of my own body or something or of my own parts. So I think I do think of I guess I, I've never explicitly thought of it as a sort of metaphor of what I do in the digital, because the dominant metaphor <laughs> for the digital sort of realm and how that got sort of incorporated into my practice the the metaphor that i used was actually about promiscuity and so it's a much different it's not so much about the form but about that i felt that i i as a thinker as a as a as an educator and someone who does a lot of exhibitions and publishing and all kinds of things i mean publishing my writing and i worked you know whatever etc cetera, etc cetera, I, I was thinking a lot about the role of the artist as a, you know, as an exhibitionist and as, as, as someone who's promiscuous, especially as a teacher where you do the kind of mentor teaching that I've been doing for so long, where you, you really have this intensive one-on-one -on -one relationship with many, many students over a long period of time. And there's a kind of that connected with the, just the, the sheer intensity of 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 the projects that come down the pike as a you know in your art career it feels like you're having like all these one night stands like one out you know <laughs> you know what i'm saying like that it feels extremely promiscuous in the sense that you get turned on by other people's invitations and then you respond and then that in turn produces what you are and who you are so it's a, you know it's not like oh i'm in my studio making all these wonderful things and then people are going to come in here and like discover them it's like that's not the way contemporary art is sort of unfolding do you know what i mean it's it's not made so so privately in that regard so so the metaphor for me in terms of what was happening online was that i was sort of literalizing the promiscuity that i found in my professional life in this other space online and then i was able to sort of you know, and that was not an intentional thing as a as a project. It just actually happened. So it's a long way to answer your question, but but essentially there was a kind of metaphor that you know, or sort of analogous kind of situation that that sort of pushed me to to really explicitly utilize that material. But I, I think that then that ends up being, phys, you know, as a form or something that is made and composed much, just much more like writing. It's not like collage at all because it's, it's just good editing. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just, you know what I'm saying? Because there isn't a kind of cut up component or anything like that to, but I mean, obviously I in in the world that we i mean i've always i've always referenced the kind of 
banality of the word processing environment or the digital environment. Like there's the early pieces of uh, the sorrows. Uh, w is for Werther, where it has a, a icon of a open folder. And then there's a, a sort of stack of these word documents, you know, one on top of the other, almost as a sort of Barnett Newman zip kind of drawing, you know, and that. And indeed the Microsoft Word logo mini Microsoft Word logos kind of falling into an ocean. Yeah, and then those two. Yeah, so this Microsoft Word as a kind of, you know, the icon there, I was already using, I've already, I've often been referring to these sort of banal everyday, it's like a, it's like a non-glamorous version of a Brillo box or something, you know, the folder with the repeated icons. And the thing with YWs for Werther, it's like, the whole notion of the stars of young Werther, I mean, the whole novel or novella is essentially produced from the conceit of the author. He says, oh, I found these letters. So letter A plus letter B plus letter C on through Z equal the story. So the notion that this one plus this one plus this accumulation, you know, automatically reveals a narrative or something. I mean, you know, when people merely hand wrote things or typed on a typewriter, cutting and pasting was a laborious thing to do. I mean, writers did it. You know, we have, you know, there are writers who, who would cut and paste typed passages onto other sheets of paper as a way of playing with ordering novels or pieces of journalism. But something about your work reminded me of how much easier it is to cut and paste now in on, on, on screens and how kind of screens have caught up to the way artists could do collage going back to the 19-teens. Collage, I don't mean to say it's an easy thing to do, but but it's easy for an artist to take 10 things and move them around on, on a canvas until they feel right and then make sure they stay there. And only recently has it become as easy to work with words. And yeah, that kind of something about walking through the show at the hammer clicked that into place for me and made me very grateful for Microsoft Word for the first time maybe ever. <laughs> I remember I remember when I was making, you know, that like the rug in the show, that kind of the hook rug with the sort of Joseph Kasuth looking. I remember around the time when I was making that and, you know, like a handful of sort of main artists that I knew about or cared about that sort of would you know, make the, your average person grumble because you had to read something or whatever, you know? <laughs> so there was this kind of real, like, like, I don't want to have to read anything or text is, text is a problem. But now if you think about just like any old, whatever, 12 year old, who's like on the verge of sexting, you know, they have this whole experience of, of projecting onto letters you know, that are typeset or whatever. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? They're, and I think that's that's one of the sort of fascinating, as much as I, I am turning into a kind of almost, yeah, I'm very, very nervous about what my smartphone does to my life. I don't, <laughs> and to my child's life. But at the same time, I think it's kind of unprecedented, this new sort of like, it's. I guess what I'm trying to say is there's an aspect of my favorite thing about reading, like a love letter or something, that that has kind of has a little bit of it has seeped into the sort of addictive culture of the smartphone and the kind of per pervasive flirtation that happens with kind of disembodied text, you know. So. <laughs> totally. Somewhere there's an art student wondering what you're going to do with emojis. So. <laughs> Uh, you know, as 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 you raise those questions, I think of your 2011 digital video, My Best Thing, which is a digital animation with text, with conversation of people engaging in cyber banter. And it was, I, I think it debuted at the Venice Biennale in 2011. And it's the first thing people see when they come into the Hammer Show. And it's really, um, it's great. It's, whoever made that decision, that's a very good decision. So you were talking before about exhibitionism and your life and work being on display. How intensely rooted is my best thing in Paris Hilton and Kim Kardashian style celebrity 
sex tapes. How rude. I don't think it's rooted in that at all, but I do make reference to that in another piece where I'm kind of calling out Kanye and I say, <laughs> and I say a few things and I say, I made a sex tape too. It's in this museum, fool. <laughs> so I think that I think that I am, I guess, trying to argue for a different level of sexuality, a different, you know, because it is a sex tape, but it's also a work of art. And I don't and I I guess that I remember the first sex tape that was floating around in the world, as I recall, was like a, on a, is a you can get a. Uh, VHS of Rob Lowe or something. Oh my God! I, uh, yeah, <laughs> we, we, at the Democratic convention one year. Right? <laughs> yeah, I don't even. Re- yeah, I don't know. I just remember like suddenly it was like a literally like a you know like a uh, VHS tape, and here's the Rob Lowe sex tape if you want to look at it. And then I, back when that had to be distributed the way. Yeah, the way and then I think there was also very physical way. Yeah. My friend worked at the Hollywood Reporter and came home one day with a VHS of the Pamela Anderson, whatever Motley Crue one or whatever. So like I do remember that, and I you know, and I think that that's I've that's you know you pop pop it in the VCR and it's like a bore and it's not really. In, you know, it's nothing other than the phenomenon of somehow. But so I, I don't I think that the film is is definitely about the certain paradoxes of living in a, you know, in such a hyper sexualized moment in, in history. But it's also very, I would say, warmly kind of. Uh, I don't know if a romantic is the word, but it, it believes in sexual energy and sexual power. And I think that it was explicitly, you know, chosen the narrative and edited all because I was invited to be in the Biennale. So I focused on the this one Italian chat partner and because particularly because he was against uh, Berlusconi's government and rioting and whatnot. And Berlusconi, as an American, all you knew about Berlusconi is that he was some wild baller with some like stuff. <laughs> Do you know, this is like the guy like yeah. doing horrible, horrible things to the government. But the only thing you know about him is that he's like has wild orgies. Do you know? So, so it was this kind of like that. So he's being demonized for the sort of as a distraction, not being demonized for the like no one's breaking down the actual stuff that's happening in the country. So, so in that regard, I liked the irony of using like someone who's just on the internet to like get off with me is also an activist against Berlusconi. You know, like that was sort of like the, that's, that's just like one little bit of the narrative kind of oomph of why, (laughs) of how that came to be, do you know? All while kind of pointing to the sexiness of conversation and interpersonal banter rather than mere, you know, rather than just like dancing on a dance floor as a form of attraction, it kind of a return to words. Yeah. And I think that even though that we were in a situation on the Internet that was purely sexual, that the sex itself led back to the human, you know, humanity of each person. And that, so, because the thing about Kardashian is she's not really, she can't dance. She's not, she doesn't have, I don't, I didn't see the sex tape, but I've heard it's pretty boring. So it's like the notion, the sort of replacing the kind of image of sexuality or the image of sexual prowess or the image of, or or a kind of packaged image of beauty with the, you know, it's just, it's so different from the experience of beauty and the experience of sexual prowess and the, you know, it's just, and so I feel, I do feel really like that it is a direct, I don't know, refusal of that, of that culture or, or a kind of alternative, you know, like, you know, I mean, like a, that does break my heart, you know, the fact that we, that, that they are, as big of influences as they are right now. I mean, it, it, it comes across that way. I mean, I think that's, <laughs> I think that's what I, what, what I was thinking about when I, um, when I saw it at the hammer. And I think that maybe because it's the first thing in the show, it does set up or 
prompt a, a viewer to be willing to spend time reading throughout the show, which I also like. Yeah, that's the thing too. It's because it was we thought. I mean, really, it was like it was like an algebra problem to find the spot for that piece in the show, you know. And it was really like a kind of giant, like you know, like you know, whatever, looking like we're in a Caltech or something, you know, like it was really complicated to figure out what, how to do that. And I think the humor there of putting it first is sort of also part of the logic of how the thing was made in the first place was like, you're invited to the Venice Biennale that has like, you know, 500 artists, you know, whatever, probably more than that, you know, however many artworks are in this place is you have a short amount of time. It's like, you're completely competing for, for people's attention in a, in a circus. But I wanted desperately to tell this story that was lengthy. And so what I did was I did it. A hundred minutes, I think. I didn't know it was going to be that long. I just knew I had to sort of try to talk about the medium between cinema and art. You know, there was a, there was a lot of stuff going on in the piece and referring to Fellini's Eight and a Half, et cetera, et cetera. But what I did was I made it into those serial short bits because I, that would then have a summary every time the next one began. So in the last episode, la, 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 because I knew that that's the way people would be watching it. And it's also a little bit like, I think that thing was extremely influenced by a kind of Netflix binge watching kind of thing. Um, Do you know where you, where you, have, yeah, like, yeah. Or I don't know if it's necessarily Netflix, but binge watching the wire, for example, where you, like you're on your sixth episode and you're still playing the intro music and singing along to it or whatever. <laughs> so, so there is this sense of also understanding culturally that much that there is a very sophisticated form of narrative development that happens over long periods of time. And people are very, very used to that, you know, except they're in a conflict they're in an art show and they have to hurry. So I was trying to have the bo best, best of both worlds, I suppose, and also to essentially give the reader or the viewer a major payoff if he or she, you know, stuck it out. So it's like you could watch a little episode and get the gist of what's going on in the work of art. But if you if you commit like a feature film, you got yourself a feature film. So I think that that kind of like the simultaneity of being like easy and oh ha 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 it's it's you know like how it, you can kind of quickly laugh at how goofy the scenario is that that kind of it's that I'm also starting like here's 25 years worth of my work now sit down for 110 minutes <laughs> <laughs> you know I know no one's gonna do that but it's like the paradox of that you know and then some people actually do and then you're like wow now I have the whole rest of the show. <laughs> Or, or it gives you a reason to return to a show four days later and 23 days later. And, you know, and, and good shows, good exhibitions do that. My guest is Francis Stark. We'll be right back after a break. Ernie Gare's large-scale, multi-screen video installation, Carnival of Shadows, is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Using an early 20th century shadowgraph toy as its source, Carnival of Shadows is simultaneously a reflection on early animation and genre cinema, a playful exercise in moving image graphics, and an extension of the artist's interest in the abstraction, texture, and rhythms of visual material. And don't miss the critically acclaimed exhibition Picasso Sculpture. Get more info and time tickets at MoMA.org. The Hammer Museum presents Uh-Oh! the most comprehensive survey of the Los Angeles-based artist and writer, Frances Stark. This exhibition tracks her 25-year career, from early works on paper to more recent performances, animated films, and videos, including her critically acclaimed works My Best Thing and Bobby Jesus's Alma Mater, backed with Reading the Book of David and or Paying Attention is Free. Stark's singular practice explores her own life through an extraordinary range of subjects and mediums while offering a clever critique of contemporary culture. Uh-oh! is on view at the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles October 11th to January 24th. Visit hammer.ucla.edu. And now back to my conversation with Francis Stark. 
so switching back to the analog realm, I totally love the 2007 Chorus Girl works. And they were first installed at the Secession in Vienna. They are installed at the Hammer in a way that if you stand, more or less, at one end of the show and look back toward the previous five or six galleries, the viewer sees pretty much all of them. They're all on kind of the edges of walls. You can see them at once. Is that how they were installed in Vienna? Yes. So that was the tricky, that was the other, the other tricky problem to solve for this exhibition because in Vienna, which is such an amazing building because it is almost like a kind of venture, you know, like a decorated shed, you know, because it is like a, it's a pretty amazing scenario but they had these they have these movable walls you know they have like a system for for just propping up walls in the middle of the room so i had free floating walls for in vienna and i had it so that when you only when you got to the other side of the room once you passed through everything could you then take in the whole image which was like a kind of dance floor where you could see all the chorus girls you know somehow not that they're yeah that they're on a stage together, you know? And so that was a kind of payoff view that we were struggling to achieve, you know, in the context of all other artworks. So I didn't, we didn't even know that was going to be, if we could achieve it at all. And we mapped it out. And then once we got in the space, yeah, it worked a lot. It worked, it worked. And I think my favorite part about that is how the one that's closest to you when you're standing in the position to sort of take it all in at once to the right is one who's peeking out of from behind a giant sort of swatch of black paper. And that's hanging on a wall that's painted black. That's part of the sort of, you know, one of the projection rooms. So it's sort of foreshadowed in a way the sort of inclusion of of video or projection space into the practice. Do you know? Because... Yeah, because the Chorus Girl dates from 2007 and eight. Yes. And you start using video, I think, in 2010. Yeah, I mean, I did make the PowerPoint, which is like kind of like a movie. And I did make cat videos in, the, in 1999. So, but I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't using a sort of cinematic space to, to play with language in the way I am now. But yes, the the Chorus Girls, that exhibition in Vienna, which is called A Torment of Follies, was a major exhibition for me. There was so much going on in that work. And it was like the seed of something I was going to go on to make an opera. I want to make an opera. Or this was like a kind of, you know, parade, you know, or the fact that the dancers, their, their outfits, which are made up of these kind of trippy optical illusion posters the out- they, they appear to be spinning yes, as you yes, so the, out- the elements of what they're wearing appear to be spinning in a kind of an oppie arty way yeah they're, so it's like just a ready-made op art poster from a head shop or something so i got those <laughs> and turned them into the costumes and then the costumes it's 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 like the paradox the costumes dance but the dancers can't dance because they're just collab you know so it's this kind of it was this kind of like I wanted to have like a dance, like Busby Berkeley, you know, like, oh, OK, we're going to choreograph like a great dance to this one passage from the Ferdy Dirk from the Vitold Gombrovich novel. And then, of course, that's the inspiration. But I that's not what I do. So it's a bunch of drawings that kind of play with the notion of how we still have as as two dimensional artists, we still envy that the dimension of time and and the ability to make things move. Yes, exactly. And that's also, again, the predicament of dealing with longer narratives and texts in artwork. It's like, uh, no, I need it all in this mo- in this one second. Because I remember when, I think that these sort of that long view sort of payoff that you're describing is, is, is to me, that's a real achievement. And, and I'm, I'm quite proud of it. And, and it, and I, and I think, because I think about, when I first, like I said, I did come to art from writing mostly. And, and I remember when I first started to go to galleries a lot, I would get really perplexed to think 
look at that. Someone just walked in the gallery and they were there for like 45 seconds. And then they think they saw the show. But if you picked up, even if you picked up a one page Lydia Davis short piece of writing and only spent 45 seconds, I'm sorry, you missed the whole thing. You know what I mean? It's like you have to read every word to make the writing come to life. And I think with visual art, culturally, just as a practice, there it's not required. So obviously there are people who read things extraordinary close, extraordinarily closely, do you know? But culturally, we don't, that's not a requirement. Do you know what I'm saying? Right, <laughs> so right. have to have right. these kind of like, so I think that this, that kind of like gestalt long, you know, that like, that view is something that I, yeah, like how do you have that sort of like, punctum I don't know if that's the right word but how do you have that sort of like seductive kind of like impactful look you know and still cultivate like a sustained like readerly attention paying you know I don't know I think that's the trick I think you know as you're describing that I'm I'm remembering or, or it's coming to mind that the chorus girl collages are all in different collections so the only times a viewer could see them at once is either in Vienna five years ago or, or at the Hammer now. And how do, how do you feel about that? I guess I feel like that's, you know, I guess in a weird way, I feel that that wholeness and the, and the kind of metastasizing of thought or into the practice, yeah, I think that's something, that's what I always feel like as an artist. Like, and that's why the show is so special to me. And like I was saying previously, you know, before we started, oh, it's so nerve wracking to imagine talking about this exhibition when people aren't actually in it. And it took, you know, it's 25 years worth of work and they're all sitting together in a, some kind of symphonic fashion where they inform each other and create a kind of tone or a kind of harmony that isn't possible, like flipping through a book or learning through, you know, or, you know, 10, 35 second visits to my art shows over the past 15 years, you know, like, like, so there is, so that kind of, so the fact that this work, the work that is in my mind or that my, yeah, my body of work can't come into focus without, without getting together in a room, yeah, you know, and, <laughs> and there, you know, that, and that I think, yeah, there's, I'm sorry, I'm kind of really like hit, struck by it. it's such a simple, it's such a simple fact. And yet it is, it, 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 there's something extremely profound about what that means to do this job. I mean, there's a, there's a sequence in the Azervate Legete Conme video piece that's the installation with the three walls where the Mozart plays and the chats kind of are like the aria and he one of the characters says don't you ever feel like a whore you know selling your child's or whatever you know like talking about getting rid of your you know that you don't have your artworks anymore your babies are they're all gone and and I and I think that the dream or the kind of assumption is that there are those few scholars who will do the selective concordance. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And, Absolutely. And I, I'm, I'm sad to say that I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's going to still exist. I don't, <laughs> you know, so I think that's the risk or the gamble, you know, it's like, it's not to say that I choose that that constellation to be difficult and to say, oh, this is some kind of like dark truth that nothing can ever be Humpty Dumpty's men could never put. You know, it's not like I'm not I'm not really claiming that as like some kind of as part of why I made the work that way. But I think you pointing that out is really it's intense because, you know, another thing about these exhibitions it's not like you could sit and dream up and say, I want this, this, that, and the other. It's like you ha you can't, if something's in Greece off the beaten path, it's not going to get on the list. Do you know what I mean? That's not going to get on the shipping list. 
Yeah, it's expensive. It's more difficult. Customs. Yeah, so it's not like this show and every, you know, is all exactly every single piece brought together again or like that just that kind of thing is totally impossible. So it is kind of fascinating to think about. Uh, I mean, and I think I, I, I try to I think I do speak to that a lot, like the whole of all the parts and the parts of all the parts or there, you know, I speak a lot to that kind of parceling out issue you know and that kind of when can things kind of come back into focus or come back together well some artists love it when their stuff gets back together because it's a special moment and some artists have a hard time with it because it, for reasons ranging from a reminder of mortality to wanting to work on the next object rather than thinking about 20 year old objects and here is an example, particularly with the Chorus Girl pieces, which are far flung, although many of them are in New York, different places in New York, but in New York, that they could come back together. Yeah, I think when I made that, I also, we did a book for the secession, a catalog. And so, and I designed it pretty much, you know, and I, I guess I, it was almost like it was functioning as a children's book. So I think because they were together in the book, kind of coming one after another, like a kind of narrative or something that I felt that I did keep them together in the world in one regard, you know, so, cause that one, that is, that's a different, this is a very specific example where they were meant to come into focus or, or lack thereof in terms of the spinning. Yeah, outfits. exactly. <laughs> because no matter how many times I've tried in the catalog, I can't make the outfit spin. No, but really. Cause we could, I sometimes see them spinning in the catalog. The, the kind of last thing I wanted to ask about was birds. There are birds everywhere in, in your work across, you know, many different time periods. There's a portrait of the artist as a full-on bird, which is the title of the work, but also is um, a bird, maybe a cockatoo or a cockatiel. There are peacocks. There's a work called Unfortunately, which features a couple of little birds, kind of chickadee-sized birds hanging out around letters shaped as apples why birds i guess the birds they well i how birds and bees <laughs> guess, <laughs> but there aren't bees no there aren't be, there's only one wasp i think in the show but i think or took a handful of wasps but i the birds they're they're sort of an they're um you know they're kind of a cliche kind of symbol i guess there were a lot of Initially, I started employing them in a collage, and I feel like the way that I came to understand the motif or the formal impulse to use them that way had to do with the way the marginalia pieces were originally, that before I was in, incorporating collage, where, where I felt that the marginalia or the text written down in the margin was some like a bird perching on that thing on that sentence or something and so when you mark up a book you're leaving your little trail of where you to go back and reread and so i started you know sort of putting birds in like they were perching on thoughts and they represented also because they have the eye that is so simple yet they're so alien they kind of were just they seem like an easy way to personify or or anthropomorphize it just somehow it was a way to to have that like single moment of of apprehension versus the moment of like okay i pieced together the phrase and now i think okay unfortunately nothing is difficult to achieve as the image of a man thinking you know, I, that's that, that's something along those lines that's written on the sort of circular globes that the little chickadee-sized birds are perched on. So you have this kind of complicated phrase that is a kind of deep thing to wrap your head around. But the birds give you that moment or something. It was just a way, they they literally came into the practice as a way for me to kind of try to get the reader attention you know like a little but it also sounds like you're kind of describing them as you yeah and they also are a stand-in for consciousness or a wink like and then i'm standing there looking at the reader viewer like haha you got it you know whatever so and but they also represent i think the voice 
and 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 they represent for for Emily Dickinson the poet and they also represent generically freedom you know and and then i think that the peacock obviously is 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 another has another host of uh characteristics that that are relevant but but i think that yeah i do feel that the bird has been super crucial because it was the kind of it literally was the moment which i when i figured out a kind of how to use the how yeah it opened up the, my use of language the art of los angeles and art that is in los angeles includes a couple of the most significant engagements with birds in post-surrealist art the museum of contemporary art downtown has the greatest collection of rauschenberg's combines including several of which that include birds and of course in rauschenberg at least in 50s rauschenberg birds are typically or traditionally read as being all of which of course don't fly are typically read as being um, a reference to Rauschenberg's grappling with his own sexuality and then of course in early Ed Ruscha you have bird after bird after bird right, with the pencil beaks and the race yeah. Tails. yeah and also those birds are very specifically silent do you think you were mining those I think so I honestly I mean really honestly I remember the moment that I just decided <laughs> I was like in Germany and I got a bird magazine <laughs> in the train station and it was like a gimmick it was like oh just stick a colorful bird on it for a second and we were joking around you know kind of that it was a little bit like a gimmick in that regard and then but I do think but but there is a secondary and a third time and a fourth time to sit to leave birds in or use them again it's i'm not i don't think i was mining that tradition so much as i do feel that because i read so deeply into things that i i just i started to see the multiple ways that a bird kind of like encapsulated or or made a space for like consciousness or on the on the image you know so that you could because I was kind of fine with just the right, you know, just the text, but most people could, couldn't totally enter it. And, and I think, and I think that the way that I wrote the text and the way that I visualized the text or employed the text on the surface of the paper or the canvas was almost even like, you know, like Woodstock's little scraps, scrapes, like, you know, so there is this kind of like gibberish quotient you know, and that's the thing. I think also when I was using birds a lot, when I started using birds, I was living in a place, we had a pretty beautiful garden and we actually just, you you know, you just hear, you just hear birds all the time. You just hear. And if you, if you ever just like open your mind to that sound that's around you, you realizing like, I have no idea what they're talking about. You know, like, <laughs> do you know what I, like, yeah. it's kind of stunning when you suddenly go, oh my God, there's all that happening. And it's just, it's Greek to me, you know, it's not. And, and I feel like there was, I remember, you know, all these kind of emotions or memories are coming back from, from that kind of, when I was turning that corner with the work and, 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 and clumsily introducing collage but I, I I do think that that the bird became yeah like just like an easy stand-in for for the for the for the kind of impenetrable. I mean that's maybe that's also the cat videos too, where when you're looking at the cat, you're think you know you're thinking God oh what is he thinking you know how can what how is he gonna do all day and now he's just gonna lick his butt and then what is he gonna like you can't stand to not know what's in someone's head. You know what I mean? It's like this kind the impenetrability of consciousness, the fact that your consciousness is silent inside of your, inside of your skull. And there's something about when you see those birds and their, their sort of simple eye, I feel like that's what it kind of like gets at to me. I'm not sure. This is way too much about. Nope. I like it. I like it. <laughs> but when you were describing listening to birds while you're working, outside you know I, I i'm a hiker i'm one of those nutty people who goes into the forests or mountains for 20 miles and and hikes and um 
and in terms of wondering what birds are saying, one of the functions many birds fulfill in the forest is 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 a warning function. So when I hear a bird, you know, making a lot of noise suddenly for no apparent reason, and then I hear 20 animals, whether it's deer or squirrels or bears or whatever scurrying, I get to feel in that one moment, I know what they're saying. They're saying, hey, there's, there's a dude. Yeah, pay attention. <laughs> get the hell out of the way. You might have a gun. Yeah, you know? well, that, okay. Well, <laughs> this is an interesting segue into the name of the show, which is Uh-Oh!, which Bobby Jesus, who appears in several of the works, he, you know, he and I, well, he, he, he that, that was his idea to call the show that. And it was a complicated sort of conversation that we were having to get there. But I think ultimately what is so appealing, why, the reason why we got it in the first place was because we were talking about the possibility of making street banners. And and all my titles, if you know, probably are very lengthy and pithy and philosophical and, you know, poetic. And I thought, but I'm in L.A. and I can't do that for the L.A. audience. So, he, you know, and we were like, what could what would work on a pole banner, you know, on the banner? Uh oh, because it would describe anything under the banner. It would make a perfect photo shoot no matter what. So but ultimate, you know, as we start sort of ruminating on it as a kind of percussive sound and et cetera, et cetera. It really was attractive to me or, or powerful and, and to me because what it speaks about is the, is precisely the guttural ability to, to announce like something is wrong. Like, you know, uh, uh, like physically, like it's a, it's a meter. It's like a little meter in our bodies that our voice registers danger or registers concern the fact that our voice can do that without you know what i'm saying yeah yeah it also prompts people to look more closely than looking for what's correct people always look more closely for what's wrong with something than with what's right about it yeah i think i just wanted to make that point about the uh oh because what you're saying about the birds and that's really what they're out there doing you know, like, oh, hey, oh, hey, you know, and I think that's that that the utterance that the, you know, and, and I think that for my work, I mean, I'm doing so many, having so many conversations with art history. And that was, you know, that's, that's what artists do. They have conversations with our history. Francis Stark, thanks so much for talking with me. Oh, thank you so much, Tyler. That was great. The Wexner Center for the Arts at The Ohio State University presents After Picasso, 80 Contemporary Artists, on view September 19th through December 27th. After Picasso is a major exhibition examining Picasso's potent legacy and ongoing impact on several generations of artists. This vibrant show fills the entirety of the Wexner Center's galleries and includes a diverse array of work from international talents such as Andy Warhol, Louise Lawler, Henri Cartier-Bresson, Amy Selman, Haimo Zobring, Jasper Johns, and many more. Originally organized by the Dijkter Holland and called Picasso and Contemporary Art, this exhibition is making its only stop in the United States at the Wexner Center. For more information, go to wexarts.org. The Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas presents Italian artist Giuseppe Pannone's first U.S. museum exhibition in more than 30 years. The exhibition, Being the River, Repeating the Forest, features 24 works from Pannone's long career highlighting the artist's deep and abiding interest in the creative forces of the artist and those of nature, reflecting the complex and intimate connection between humans and the world we inhabit. See Being the River, Repeating the Forest from September 19, 2015 to January 10, 2016. For more information, visit nashersculpturecenter.org or call 214-242-5100. Welcome back. Instead of a second guest this week, it's time for my 12th annual top 10 list. This year's list probably isn't quite as thorough as some of my previous lists. As many of you know, in late 2014, I sold a book on which I'm working to the University of California Press. And between spending much of this past year living on the West Coast and traveling less so I can work on the book, I saw fewer major exhibitions than in previous years. We do what we can do. As usual, this list is in rough, more or less like this order, from something around number 10 to around number 1. 
And as usual, these are exhibitions from the modern era, so from about the late 19th century forward. I'll start with Alberto Burry at the Guggenheim. Curator Emily Braun did a terrific job of showing how Burry experimented with both materials and actions, all while making objects that could be read as paintings. Braun deserves special credit for presenting Burry in a way that both celebrated his career and then made evident his primary weakness, as much as he stayed within the lines of painting's conventions, making objects that used or riffed on canvas and stretcher bars, for example, Burry was substantially disinterested in composition. Next up, a little bit of a cheat. I did not see Mariam Ghani's Currents exhibition at the St. Louis Art Museum over the summer, but I did see the main piece in it, Ghani's newest work, The City and the City, a single-channel video. She made it while in residence at Washington University in St. Louis, a residency that overlapped with the unrest in Ferguson, where the police killing of Michael Brown prompted an intense reaction from St. Louis County residents and continued a national conversation on police violence and race. The City and the City uses author China Mieville's sci-fi detective noir novel, also titled The City and the City, as a way of examining unnamed but plainly suggested fractures and segregations within the contemporary urban environment. It's the best artistic engagement with American extrajudicial killing that I've seen. If I were a curator in, say, Chicago or Baltimore, I'd want this work on view now. By the way, we ran a seven-minute excerpt from the work on manpodcast.com back in May, and we'll repost it with this week's show. 2015 was not a particularly strong year for group shows of contemporary art at American museums. The best one I saw was Light Paper Process at the J. Paul Getty Museum. It was curator Virginia Heckert's examination of how seven artists, Matthew Brandt, Marco Breuer, John Chiara, Chris McCaw, Lisa Oppenheim, Alison Rossiter, and James Welling, make art out of materials associated with photography rather than cameras. Installed as a series of rich solo presentations, the exhibition still made evident the links between the artists and their explorations. The next two exhibitions are the best career surveys of living artists that I saw in 2015. Curator Catherine Kraft's Melvin Edwards Retro at the Nasher Sculpture Center in Dallas and Jeffrey Grove's Michael Boreman's show at the Dallas Museum of Art. The denseness of Kraft's show spotlighted Edwards' smart mix of collage and welded steel, work that's full of art historical intelligence, sexual innuendo, and muscularity. Grove took the opposite approach. His spare installation of Boreman's painting full of art historical intelligence, sexual ambiguity, and compositional muscularity, allowed each terrific painting to demand its own audience, its own time from each viewer. The best posthumous retrospective I saw this year was Ruth Fine's Norman Lewis exhibition at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. It forced me to reconsider Lewis's role and achievement, and I came away thinking that Lewis wasn't just good. He was one of the half-dozen or so most important artists of America's post-World War II painting explosion and the key figure in bringing socio-political content into American abstraction. One more thing. Neither this Norman Lewis retro nor the Melvin Edwards survey I mentioned a moment ago was organized in or traveled to New York or Los Angeles. Both exhibitions revealed their subjects as among the most important American artists of their generations. Museum directors in America's two most important and biggest art cities should ask themselves uncomfortable questions about why top-notch exhibitions of these two plainly significant artists weren't good enough for their museums and their cities, because they were. My next show is the best historical survey I saw at an American museum this year. Curator Stephanie Barron's New Objectivity, Modern German Art in the Weimar Republic, 1919-1933. The show examines how artists engaged with the fractures of German society, and in some cases chose not to, in the years between the world wars. This is the sixth in a series of exhibitions of 20th century German art that Barron has organized. Each show and catalog has been smartly revisionist and imperative. No American art museum consistently organizes more great exhibitions to less national fanfare than the Clifford Still Museum in Denver. Over the last few years, curator David Anfam and director Dean Sobel have been quietly rewriting the history of American abstract expressionism. Sometimes they do it a little too quietly. Anfam's 2014 The War Begins, Clifford Still's Paths to Abstraction confirmed that World War II and Still's artistic response to it was crucial in birthing what we now call ABEX. Unfortunately, the museum didn't publish a catalog of the show, and the exhibition had far less impact than it should have. Fortunately, the museum seems to have learned from that mistake and published a catalog for this year's Still Museum blockbuster, Repeat, Recreate, Clifford Still's Replicas. The show, which includes major works from MoMA, the Hirshhorn, the Metropolitan, Detroit, and so on, 
looks at how Still made two or more versions of many paintings and works on paper. I felt like the show put me in a time machine, back to the moment of creation, and gave me the opportunity to consider the decisions Still made at key points throughout his career. My top two exhibitions are both sculpture shows. Anne Umland and Anne Temkin's MoMA survey of Pablo Picasso's sculpture is thorough, smartly installed, and should remind us that no matter how famous an artist may be and how well we may think we know his work, there's always more to learn. Sure, Picasso wasn't always a great sculptor. Sometimes, especially later in his career, he was just messing around. But by including some of that second-tier work, Temkin and Umland reveal that Picasso made his best sculpture when he did one of two things. When he engaged with his contemporaries, such as Brock and Matisse, or when he worked with a partner, such as Julio Gonzalez. The 2015 exhibition, in which I most enjoyed standing, moving through, looking up at, looking down at, and even sticking my head up into, was the Philida Barlow exhibition at the Nasher Sculpture Center. Curator Jed Morris gave Barlow everything she needed to wow, from pretty much any space in the Nasher's Renzo Piano Design Building, to allowing her to do some things, and to encourage the viewer to do some things, at which other museums might have balked. If this wasn't the best show of 2015, it was damn close. It was certainly my favorite. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.